0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte.
2: Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the offices of the law firm Dorsey and Whitney in Midtown Manhattan. Thank all of you for coming. Woo! Woo! Alright. The Syndica Podcast is produced in partnership with Sup China, which as you all surely know is just the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. I want to draw your attention uh, to one of the new excellent features on the site. It's called Chinese Corner. And it's a little roundup of the articles, the books, the web content that Chinese readers are, are reading and talking about. It, it has to be my favorite thing now on the site. And you should definitely check it out. It's written by Jiayun Fung, who's one of our very, very talented writers. SupChina, of course, is overseen by this man here, Jeremy Goldhorn, editor-in-chief, who's trying his hardest to get us in trouble with both Chinese officials and with the Trump administration. And that's why we love him. Jeremy, greet the people, will you?
3: <laughs> Thank you, guys. <Kaiser>. Hello, people. <laughs>
2: yeah. All right. Uh, so let's get started, right? Uh, so DEFCON, DEFCON, that's always all caps, DEFCON. I'm going to say it DEFCON. DEFCON is the uh, best known and I believe one of the largest hacker conferences in the world. You have doubtless seen versions of it on on TV shows or in movies, and ordinarily it's held like so many professional and in- in industry events in the great city of Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, but last month, in May, it was convened in a somewhat surprising place in Beijing, the city that Jeremy and I called home for over 40 years between us.
3: And who actually sponsored uh, the conference was perhaps surprising too, none other than Kaiser's former employer,
2: Baidu. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all. Uh, so, Dave, we're very happy to have with us a report. Indeed, I believe the only reporter for a U.S.-based media outlet who covered DEFCON in Beijing.
3: As well as one of the world's foremost experts on Chinese hacking, herself a 12-year veteran of the NSA. So you better be a well-behaved audience tonight because she knows what you did last (laughs) summer. (laughs) (laughs) And keep your
2: devices close.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So let me introduce Priscilla Moriucci, head of nation-state threat research at Recorded Future and formerly of the National Security Agency. Priscilla, welcome to Seneca.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: And the reporter, the cybersecurity correspondent for BuzzFeed, who I I made reference to, of course, is Kevin Collier here to my right. Kevin, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. And, and, And thanks to both of you for taking
3: the time to join us. Kevin, Priscilla, how did you react when you heard that DEFCON was going to be held in Beijing? And how did it strike you to learn that Baidu was going to be sponsoring it? Uh, I honestly don't have a good idea of Baidu's reputation in the world of cybersecurity uh, at the moment. <laughs> I don't know that it's a bad one,
0: but I will tell you that the, the regular DEFCON in Las Vegas, which is probably the most famous slash infamous hacker conference in the world, certainly in the U.S., but probably in the world, the idea of a corporate sponsor is utterly anathema. That would you know the idea huh. that Google would sponsor DEF CON in Vegas is just could not happen. And indeed there were like there were a lot of people, longtime DEF CONers, who were furious at the idea that uh, it would be held in somewhere Held in the same country that uh, is responsible for the greatest internet censorship machine in human history.
2: Right. What about the founder, Jeff Moss, who you interviewed for? How did Mm -hmm. he rationalize this? How did he explain his decision to to have it in Beijing? He has an entrepreneurial spirit, I would say. And
0: he... One thing he would say is like, look, the Chinese government does a lot of crappy things, um, but so does the U.S. government. And to pretend that... Uh, it's an absolute. You know, one is a good government and the other is bad. Is is a little
2: so. So sort of like Donald Trump. You know, we're not exactly angels either. Right? Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, Priscilla, well, what what was your take on it? What, what was your reaction when you first heard the news?
1: In terms of Baidu, Baidu is one of the big three, right? Chinese. Um, sort of software and IT service providing companies, right? Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent um, And they have quite a close relationship uh, with the Chinese government as many Chinese companies do um, <clears throat> So from my perspective, I was a little bit concerned, one, because of the censorship uh, Apparatus in China um, The focus of China's censorship apparatus is really on getting information on its citizens, right? And on outsiders, Um to control their information space. So I really felt like that also was kind of anathema to what DEF CON represented, right? This sort of control of information, control of space. Um, And I was surprised that there were so many folks who went actually.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I was surprised to hear it myself. It was, in fact, uh, quite shocking. Tell us what DEF CON is ordinarily like. What's the event like when, when you – have you both been there before? I've been a few times. Have you? You go. Just once. Okay, so what was that all about? I mean, what's, what's it like? Give us a sense of, of what the event in Vegas is, is typically – what does it consist of? I mean, is it as portrayed in the movies? There's like a couple of obvious, you know, NSA types sitting in the audience uh, trying to figure out who's wearing black and white hats. (laughs) Well, they they always talk about playing spot the Fed. That's like the...
0: the Right, right, right. (laughs) Spot the (laughs) Fed. Uh, And there have been, you know, relatively high profile arrests um, just outside of DEF CON. There's been a couple. Uh, Last year, Marcus Hutchins, who's that British, I don't want to say kid, he's in his young 20s, but, you know young guy who stopped the WannaCry ransomware right, WannaCry, that cry, right. rings a bell for you. I don't know how in the weeds I can get here. Um, but they waited until he finished his DEFCON adjacent partying last year. And then when he went to the airport before he was flying back to the UK, they the feds cuffed him. And,
2: and he's actually, he's still sort of un, in a kind of conditional house arrest-ish yeah, state Yeah, it's right not now probation. Anymore. It's something like probation. He's still waiting. And he's been sort of enlisted now, right, to... to you know to to do good right to to prevent security i mean because he did i mean there, there's some suspicion that he actually was responsible for want to cry oh i don't think you that don't has think any, okay. any 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 okay.
0: truth behind it he he's accused of helping or create a a banking trojan would break into to banks steal banking credentials to, to hack banks a couple of years ago we'll see how that
2: plays out in court i don't want to so Ke- Kevin how much attention I mean so you're a beat reporter whose beat is cybersecurity right mm-hmm. how much attention in your ordinary day-to-day reporting were you paying to China or to I mean to both state and non-state actors from China Well
0: so the the, the what I focused on for this story about Defcon is is the kind of the private security uh, industry in in China which is not a thing that I think gets a lot of attention not a thing that's easy to break into as a western reporter and I, I certainly can't claim to be an expert on it uh but what I found looking into it is that, at the same time that the U.S., both the private industry and the government, is trying to do a better job of of illustrate, of not just discovering vulnerabilities in software so that it can exploit it privately, but also to alert the world about them, mm-hmm. China is moving the opposite direction. China is cracking down on its uh, researchers sharing anything outside of China,
2: so they're they're quite it's quite a tight knit community then.
0: But yeah, among, among
2: themselves, uh, there's quite a bit of, of there's a camaraderie. Lot, there's right? a lot of camaraderie um,
0: among kind of just like kind of regular good guy hackers who work for Baidu or Tencent or any of the, 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 the major companies. Uh, they're way tighter than the equivalent companies here in the U.S. And huh. they, they, will, they will go to, when they go to major conferences in the U.S., they'll hang out like all in together. They'll host big dinners and they'll have awards for each other. It's more of a community than than any equivalent in the US. That's for sure. Hmm.
3: Priscilla, I think um, this is the first time, at least to our knowledge, we've had someone on the show who has spent so much time in the US intelligence community. <laughs> <laughs> to our knowledge, <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> uh, what can you tell us about your job uh, while you were there? Uh, and you were working on China, I understand. Were you still at the NSA when the Snowden revelation happened? Uh, Snowden revelations happened. And when Snowden talked about specific Chinese targets for data collection, and what can you tell us about that? Without getting arrested, loaded question. Yes,
1: so I did work at the NSA uh, for twelve years. Um, my job there uh, was quite large. Towards the end, um, I was responsible for. Uh, covering all East Asia Pacific cyber threats to what we call the .dot .mil domain. So kind of in, in sort of when you type in, a, in an address on the Internet, right, instead of google.com, right, the United States government, the military use like army.mil, right. So it was actually on my uh, job responsibilities uh, for one of my supervisors to protect the entire .dot .mil domain, which is at this point hundreds of thousands of computers uh, from Chinese and North Korean cyber attackers. That uh, was not always successful, it's not a one-person job, <laughs> there's an entire agency um, behind it. Uh, so it was tough, tough work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't have a lot, whole lot to say in terms of Snowden. I mean, my one thing, I guess, with him would be uh, that I think he's a bit misguided and don't think he quite understood the implications of you know, what he revealed um, and really how complicated a system that the NSA runs uh, not aimed at Americans.
3: Well, uh, I don't really want to focus on Snowden, but let's uh, the 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 Chinese hacking that that you studied. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about the nature of the attacks?
2: Right, would would threats the .dot mil domains originate from state actors primarily, or would there be sort of you know uh, enough kind of every uh, just dudes in in their mom's basements or the Chinese equivalent who? Would go after, I mean, have the gumption to go after a dot mil target. Of the
1: above, some more successful than others. So, if if you're going to break down Chinese government sponsored hacking, right, if we start there, there are three organizations primarily that conduct um, what we call cyber operations. Uh The first is the PLA right, the military. The second is the Ministry of State Security, or China's main human intelligence service, sort of equivalent to the CIA Mm -hmm. in the United States. And the Ministry of Public Security, which is sort of equivalent to the FBI. Um, The Ministry of Public Security, the MPS, has sort of domestic mandate. So they conduct a lot of hacking and cyber operations, but broadly in the West, we don't know a lot about their capabilities because they're mainly confined to territorial China. So then we'll focus on the other two. The PLA, and the MSS or Ministry of State Security. So if we talk about like threats to dot mil, right, and sort of Chinese hacking in general, I'd say there's sort of a a golden age of Chinese hacking both for the hackers and for the investigators like myself. Um, It was about 2008 to 2013 when many hackers didn't quite realize the trail of information that could be left behind when you conduct an operation. So that means, for example, the information needed to register a malicious domain, right? Or when you uh, compromise a computer to install a piece of malware on it, that piece of malware was written by someone. And many times there are signatures in the code of that malware that are quite easy to detect. Um, and understand and become therefore a footprint or a fingerprint of behavior. So in that sort of time frame from 2008 to 2013, there was quite a distinct footprint or fingerprint for Chinese activity. Uh, that all changed um, in 2013-14 time period um, and even to, through today. There's, uh, I think we can go into this later, but there's been quite a, a transformation from that time.
2: Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that transformation, maybe, because that was something that the Obama administration really prioritized. They really went after uh, Chinese hackers. They named and shamed uh, Ugly Gorilla, who I think is, is your, your your hero, right, Jeremy? <laughs> 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 uh, no, I mean they—they they actually went. They—they they named the actual organization. Uh, the they the army unit that they, they said was primarily responsible. They fingered a vocational school in Shandong Province, if I recall correctly. That I think is ma- mostly famous for teaching line cooks. Uh, on, on, uh, on, is that and correct? And hackers. And hackers, okay. Hackers it's a great combination: <laughs> right. Right. cookery right. and hacking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, two two things that yeah. I mean, can I
0: can I ask yeah, a question? Of, uh, I mean, to how. Those the naming and shaming that specific uh, indictment. Did that how work? How much of that? How much of that information came from your office? I Did
1: can't you? say that, but I can. I can have a sense of, of whether it works or not. Um, so, in 2014, when those kind of five from this PLA unit, 61398, right? Wow, this, this, <laughs>
2: 61398.
1: Yes, yes, that just rolls off the tongue. Um, <laughs> 61398, it's like a five-digit number that... You're
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, that PLA units use as kind of cover terms, right, that allows them to um, do things like register for health care, right, and child care and things like that within their unit while still keeping some kind of sort of cover, right, without saying, I work for the 3PLA, which is China's signals intelligence service, right? Instead, I work for unit 61398. So anyway, in 2014, when those indictments were announced, the Chinese got, were very, very upset, the Chinese government. And in almost all subsequent Exchanges, diplomatic, government at all levels, uh, until that cybersecurity agreement was reached in uh, September of 2015. The Chinese demanded and complained about those indictments because they were PLA officers. Mm. Um, and uh, it was sort of after that period, after this 2014 cybersecurity agreement, realistically, where uh, from the Chinese perspective, cyber became this kind of uh, shining light in the relationship. Right. Um, so whether or not the indictments actually deterred any proactive hacking, um, I don't think we could say that. There were a lot of things going on in China in 2014, 2015, 2016 timeframe that I think had a much bigger impact uh, than indictments or cybersecurity agreement. Um,
3: what were those things? so we're going right down this rabbit hole but it's (laughs) fascinating
1: (laughs) i don't know if i get too far in the weeds just (laughs) no no Um, (laughs) i'm about to go all nerdy into like org structures and stuff um so one of the sort of holdovers from that like golden age 2018 20 2008 to 2013 of hacking for china was that There was a a fingerprint, right, that was stamped on Chinese hacking activity. And for better or worse, it has stuck with China as a nation state for the better part of 10 years. And that sort of um, that identity was one volume. Chinese state will hack you and your government and your companies with a number of groups. Many different groups will be on different servers in your company. They will compete with each other. Sometimes they won't know they're there. They just care about volume. They'll steal all your information and they'll deal with what they've stolen later. So that's one. Two, that they're quite low level, um, that their capabilities were not up there with, say, the Russians or maybe the United States. Uh, And three was that they didn't care about being caught. so for some reason that has stuck and while that may have been true for us to us for certain units right during that time frame it's certainly not true anymore and there are a number of reasons why we know that so first was that in late 2015 the pla started to reform right massive reforms throughout the entire army you know led by president xi jinping designed to sort of modernize the pla but also to institute much greater command and control right over the whole sort range of military options. During that time frame, an entirely new organization called the Strategic Support Force was stood up. This organization combines cyber, space, and electronic warfare. Electronic warfare is like, it's called C4ISR, Command, Control, whatever the other four are. The right? other two C's. Intelligence, <laughs> <Intelligent> Surveillance, <laughs> Reconnaissance. Uh, it's like um, battlefield awareness, uh-huh. basically. Um, into this one super organization called the Strategic Support Force. So this was all occurring in 2015, 2016 time period, at the same time that the Obama administration was reaching its cybersecurity agreement with China, where both sides agreed not to conduct cyber-enabled IP theft. So you have a big reorg going on within the PLA, which at that time probably made up a quite a large amount of cyber operators and cyber threat groups. We also have a sort of change in the information security environment. So in in February of 2013, the uh, private security company Mandiant, known at that time, released that sort of infamous APT1 report, right? 61398, they had pictures, right? They had CNN, I don't know if you remember this, CNN was like filming in front of the building in Shanghai and getting chased by PLA guards, right? It was a big deal. And at this time, nobody had publicly called out hackers. I mean, at the government level, people were afraid of what would happen, you know, would China retaliate? And they would call out our hackers, for example, and sort of film outside their houses in Maryland and and chase us. Thankfully for myself, um, <laughs> that has not happened. Oh, because you would be the one being chased, huh? <laughs> right, right? I would be chasing them. How about that? <laughs> so there are just so many other factors going on. You know, the companies became better at protecting themselves, so then it became harder to conduct a successful cyber attack. So all of these things were happening at once.
2: So I, I have a bunch of questions. I mean, but first. Uh, the the causal direction the reorganization did that was that in response to the Obama administration's pressure or was that that predated no. it okay.
1: um that predated it that was a uh, Xi Jinping okay I think around 2010 he really started I to see, think about reforming the PLA okay,
2: even before he came. Yeah. um and the other thing I mean it strikes me that you, the way that you describe these uh, Chinese hacking groups it reminds me a lot of Chinese propaganda in that it's voluminous clumsy inelegant and terribly ineffective, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. That but it doesn't stick, though. No, it it's just stick. not no, true anymore. It doesn't, anymore. doesn't stick. Um, the, the other question that I had for you, though, uh, what then caused the, the or what was there an appreciable decline after the Obama administration's pressure uh, in the two, uh, 2015 period? Was there, I mean, I think the, the Obama administration likes to talk about how it, it did effectively see a, a market decrease in industrial espionage, at least, was that is that the case? Is that what you saw on the ground?
1: There's a lot. There's a lot of factors to that. Um, so I guess we'll start with the last part first. The text of that agreement, right, to prove industrial espionage means you have to prove intent. So at this point, it's not just seeing an intrusion into a company does not mean that the intruders are automatically stealing the company's intellectual property. So, for example, this may be too in the weeds for some of you, but there's, no such thing. there's a group called APT10, right, Advanced Persistent Threat, that's sort of cyber jargon, uh, number 10. Uh, last year, uh, this, group, or this group has sort of traditionally been associated with the Chinese state. It's not clear whether they've been PLA or MSS associated. Last year, this group conducted a wide-ranging operation across internet service providers in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Japan. Right. And for a lot of casual observers, the first instinct is to say IP theft. They're trying to sell the IP theft of Verizon or NTT in Japan. And that was not the case. Right. In that case, the attackers were trying to gain access to the infrastructure of those companies to then access the domestic communications of people like you and I in the United States, Japan and the United Kingdom. So that that's just an example of a case that demonstrates how difficult it is to get there to that theft of IP and to then prove that an agreement was a success. I see. I would say for for most probably th- I think the biggest outcome from that from the U.S. perspective was simply that we got the Chinese government to understand what we meant by cyber enabled IP theft and why we really didn't like it um, we had been having those discussions for many years um, and it just hadn't sunk in and then this was a real achievement there um, in
2: that case. Jeremy, let's get back to Deathcon. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the
3: alleged subject. Yes, <laughs> you, guys, you of don't the, have this. This is the more interesting. <laughs> shit. It is interesting. Like, but
2: well, you know, you're standing. You're sitting here, and I'm. Like,
3: <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, You know, Kevin, let's get back to you, uh, because you should speak at least a little bit of the time. Um, It's really fine. um, (laughs) How did you manage to get invited to DEF CON, and why wasn't there more press covering this rather remarkable uh, fact that DEF CON was being held in China? Why there wasn't
0: more, I really don't know. It might just be the prohibitive cost. I will say, I initially had a burner computer that was going to entirely wipe itself every time I closed it, and there wouldn't just, like be fresh again every time I open it. I didn't need any of that. Nobody. And I talked to the, a lot of people who
2: helped organize Def Con. You think you didn't need any. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I mean, I wanted to ask Brazil. What would you have advised young Kevin as uh, he set out? So I the, did the, talk to <laughs> young Kevin. I did that's
1: interesting. I saw you in San Francisco. Um, and I think I told you like a couple things. One, assume surveillance. You will not see it, right, most likely. Um, and uh, it's not going to be like the clumsy government type, right? It's the—it's a very sophisticated apparatus. So assume you're being surveilled, and you may not be. And two, definitely get burner stuff and just don't use it once you leave the country. If you do that, it'll be fine.
2: Also, don't pick up random USB cards and stick yeah. them into your phone. <laughs> we're actually going to get that. Um, analyzed the, the Singapore one. Oh, you it's are? It's being analyzed as we speak. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, you guys heard about this, right? They, they gave these little sort of USB-powered fans, was it? Yeah. Well, the USB-powered fans to people in Singapore attending the, the North Korea uh, every, every reporter got every one. Every reporter got one. Who and, gave and,
1: uh, them out? Do you
2: it was actually, it was a Singapore government. Like, welcome to the event. Here's a goodie bag. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean uh, that would be, that would be in line with what you were describing. So I mean I was funny. Priscilla you, you were saying that they actually when they uh they set up malicious sites they actually what you could do a who is lookup and figure out who set up this malicious site? I mean Yes.
1: Oh. That sounds so, ridiculously simple. I could join um. the NSA. <laughs> <laughs> You probably could. But. Not,
3: not when they've uh, done the background check. <laughs> no, <no>, no, <laughs>
1: so I have to say, though, that was like the good old days. Like we are no longer in the good old days when it comes to like tracking, especially Chinese cyber operators. Um, like some of these groups back in the good old days, right, would use their real names, their real cell phone numbers, their real addresses. Right. Which was amazing and awesome. Uh, if you were a researcher, and none of that occurs anymore because there was a whole rash of public reports from that 2013 time frame up until about 2015, 2016, where it was like PLA unit after unit after unit just got outed. Right. Num- full numbers, people's names. There was one even written um, uh, by a former colleague of mine um, who runs the company Threat Connect, um, which I think the report is amazing, but uh, they published pictures of the guy with his baby, oh. the hacker. So, like, you can go pretty far and find a lot of information on people, um, and that's just not the case.
2: Priscilla, when you went to DEF CON, were there a lot of Chinese who, who turned out to, to Las Vegas for this? I mean, are there Chinese yeah, hackers Yeah, so it's, a quite,
1: it's an international, it's really okay. an international event. Um, for those who haven't been, it's totally not as cool as it sounds. (laughs) Um, There are definitely really interesting demos. Uh, People are always trying to hack each other and do things on the Wi-Fi, right? And like, pwn each other. And from a like, government square perspective, I was shocked at like, the parties.
2: Pwn, PWN, you might need to explain that for the the lay people. (laughs) people. uh,
1: Hack into each other's computers or watch your internet traffic, for example. Uh, So it's very nerdy, Um, but, It's interesting if you go, uh, but it's like the party scene as well because there's an entire conference before then called Black Hat where the whole cybersecurity industry grows and vendors and parties. Um, so from a government perspective, well, I was very shocked.
3: About how much alcohol is consumed, or <laughs> yeah. that kind of, the decadence of the parties. Yes, you thought these nerds much. are supposed to be in mama's basement cracking instead of.
1: I mean, I was snorting <laughs> coke in Las Vegas. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, okay. <laughs> As a nerd, <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs>
2: uh, and Kevin, what about uh, in in Beijing? Was there a large Western contingent? Were there did people, despite their their misgivings, did they they turn up? I
0: think most of the Westerners there I saw were in some way already involved. Like, they were going because they were speaking or because they were helping lead a, a seminar or something. In a lot of ways, it looked like a mini Chinese version of the DEF CON, I, I know. But that's one of the very, like, very big uh, stark differences is stumbling drunk nerds weren't a big factor. And nor was the stench of cigarette
2: smoke from casinos. Oh. Well, yeah, it was a nice hotel. I I gotta think that I mean if I were a Western hacker I'd be maybe tempted the challenge of going to China and all I mean any did you did you talk to anyone for your story Oh yeah yeah I mean it was way easier to talk to the Westerners I, I gotta think though that so something as trivial as the Great Firewall uh, wouldn't have been too much of a of a of an impediment to seasoned hackers I mean did they go did they the ones who you you met who went did they use Commercially available, available VPNs, or did they, you know, all have their own SSL tunnels? And I think or... you would maybe be surprised by how low-fi
0: it was for most of the Western folks who went. They they did not use custom VPNs. Some of them didn't even use VPNs at all. And it's like, man, come on.
2: How do I get on Facebook? I <laughs>
0: <know>. <laughs> um, and then also surprisingly, maybe is most of them didn't bring burner phones. Most of them stuck with uh, their normal phones. And I'll tell you something. This is I. The, Thought this was a little interesting. I'll tell you that uh, a lot of companies, Apple, for instance, will go to a com- you know, like we'll have a big business meeting in China and will not bring burner equipment. We'll trust the equipment they've got is solid, you know, it's powered down, it's password protected, that sort of thing. But they'll trust that it's updated and solid, and they will only bring burners to Russia. Okay, <laughs> hmm. so there is a distinction.
3: That that kind of brings us to a question I'd originally intended to ask a little earlier. Let's talk about the difference between China and Russia, you know, from, from both of you, uh, your, your coverage as a journalist and your work at the NSA. Is Russia a bigger threat? Uh, it
0: depends on what your threat model is, not to be cagey with it, but I mean, I think, well,
2: I don't know. You're,
3: you're the former NSA. No, you so we, we've that. talked. We've, we've, <laughs> okay, Priscilla. <laughs> in, in the past, though, we've
2: we've had conversations with Adam Siegel at the at CFR, and he talks about how uh, China is more of a threat in depth. That it has just simply, I mean, a, a more robust software industry. I mean, yes, there are some stellar individual uh, talented hackers in Russia, and and some of them are you know maybe head and shoulders above their Chinese counterparts, but. The vol i mean you know quantity has a quality all its own right
1: yeah and i think you know there's a there's a bit of a bias that china gets stuck with right because of that sort of old old footprint china and russia both have high-end actors and low-end actors right high-end capabilities and low-end they're both what we consider full scope actors which means that they have the entire breadth of cyber capability that's supported, right, by a complex state apparatus, right, that's funded quite comprehensively. I think the thing with China that, and the, the Communist Party, and that people don't quite understand how to make sense of the threat, is this desire to control, right, and the degree of information that they have on people, and how it's being utilized, right, so I think, I think one of the terms I heard Someone used the other day was uh, complete information visibility is what the Chinese are going after.
2: CIV, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a new acronym uh, that we just coined. Um but so so for example, um, we think of the firewall as sort of this kind of clunky object, but that's literally one minuscule part to the entire surveillance apparatus, right? There's things like the the troll army, right, that goes on the social media sites and basically outnumbers all of the people who are expressing their true beliefs, right? If they're anathema to the Communist Party, with just the pro-communist stuff, and they just outnumber based on volume, right? There are upwards, I've heard numbers of two hundred thousand. Right to two million of those trolls, right? Shuijun, as we're yeah. talking about, yeah, yeah, right? like this right. like a 50 cent. And They're different from
2: them. I mean, they're slightly different. They're, they're the ones who just are sort of overwhelming you by volume, uh, just it's to both. sort of push comments down off, yeah. off the front page. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and I think, and you know, I think China wants to be seen as good, right? And so they maybe want a certain degree of the way that the United States is represented in the world, right? But without the responsibility. Right. The benefits, but not the responsibility, and that you can really see that in its information control and the threat, right? Like the influence operations we see across the world in Australia, particularly right in Australian politics.
2: Defensive, um, right? You're saying essentially they want to diminish criticism, deflect criticism. It's not so much about. It's not like what the Russians are doing, which is, you know, to. Pit us against one another on issues of race. It's not to undermine our faith in democracy. It's not to pull the epistemic rug out from under us and make us not believe that there are facts.
1: Right. They're right. not trying to upend the entire system because the Communist Party benefits, right, from the sure, system sure. the way it is. They're just trying to knock, to get themselves up a few notches and knock the U.S. down at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Kevin, your, your piece offers quite a bit of color about the security at the event itself, I mean, I think you you, you know pretty close to your lead, you're actually talking about you know uh, looking out in the hallway and seeing all these sort of guys taking instruction, you know stiff dudes in suits or with earpieces, presumably I mean, spot the feds pretty easy at a chi- uh, 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 uh. Um, Give some more. T- tell us what was going on there. I mean, give us a sense of what it was like to to wander the the halls. And where mm. was the venue actually? Do you remember? Gosh,
0: I forget the name of the hotel? It okay. was, it was in, in a hotel. Oh, it was okay. in a hotel. Okay, okay. Um, mm-hmm. It was relatively small. They called this beta, by the way, because oh, okay. the, the real thing is going to be next year and oh, this was, they're this do was it again. Uh, oh, interesting a few Very thousand and you know the the one in 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 vegas is what like god i don't even know fifteen thousand something like it's really big and wow. they're planning for i don't know if it's that big but you know closer to that scale um let me think so there were a handful of what i thought was fairly funny uh censorship um moments moments <laughs> uh so there's a hacking uh car hacking village every every defcon and uh, which means that they'll just set up some relatively new car with uh, you know electronic capabilities probably like a computer in the in the center console and you can set up a computer you know plug in and then see if you can break in the the guys who ran it in Beijing didn't know until a few days before the actual conference they were in Beijing before they realized they were actually going to be allowed to have a car they oh, wow. they were told they weren't sure if they were going to get a car and then every marking identifying marker of of the car was covered in black tape the the VIN was gone. Yeah, that, right, right, right. You couldn't know what kind of car you were actually hacking, just in oh, case right. learned you, how to you do it. Right, right, right. Because right, right. It was,
2: if you put the, the sticker over, it was the, a Chevy the, Cruise. Because it was a Chevy Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> <you could> <laughs> because it was a Chevy Cruise. Because people know what Chevy Cruises look like. Right? They
0: they had to go, as you might imagine. Jeff had to go through round after round, Jeff round after Jeff right, Moss, right, the founder right, right. of DefCon, had to go through round after round after round uh, with Baidu's government security team to get to the actual Chinese government to make sure everything was was clear. Every little step of the way. Uh, one of the things they recommended was hey we, we got this cool logo idea it's going to be the US and then China and then it'll just that'll be on on a motherboard and they submitted that and they had three different government officials say oh no 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 like it, if it doesn't have Taiwan you can't use this and it didn't have Hawaii or Alaska either but they made a big stink about it has to have Taiwan as part of the border of China so they just compromised by just having the whole world which was way less
2: cool we know well, that stuff is now called orwellian nonsense so. <laughs> That's, that's the official
3: name of that, right, right, right. <laughs> So um, Priscilla, what about um, the current state of the relationship in cyberspace between China and the United States? You know, we, we know, uh, we've talked a little bit about the, what happened during the Obama administration, how it prioritized uh, cyber, uh, especially in later years. But how much progress did they actually make? You, you have sort of talked about this, but perhaps we can just revisit it in a little bit more detail. And how badly did the Snowden revelations hurt America's ability to push back on Again China? Again, with Snowden. What are you <laughs> yeah. obsessed with, this guy, Jeremy? <laughs> well, I, and I, I'd like to clarify their ability to sure. uh, push back on China, both uh, in the sense of losing the moral high ground, uh, but also in terms of China's awareness of what the NSA was up to and their ability to uh, defend against it.
1: Sure. So I think, um, in terms of well, tackle the first part, how the relationship with China is on cybersecurity broadly right now. For the most part, cybersecurity seems to be a, a second tier issue for the Trump administration with China. They're focused much more on trade and cooperation on North Korea. And at least from the from the public perspective and what's in you know, sort of public information, um, they're kind of happy i guess with how things are um and they did indict a series uh another series of uh actors last year these were actors that were actually associated with the ministry of state security although the government didn't come out and name that agency um or that ministry at the time so i think that but you will yeah i actually found the attribution on that one so i'm going to my own horn there um, oh, all right. All right. <laughs> uh, there's only one group so far it's been publicly attributed to the mss um that's this group called apt3 um
2: not ap310 oh this is it was ap, well, AP it Was apt10 now and this is, APT3.
1: is 3 it goes okay. all the way up to uh, i believe 37 okay and there's all these pandas and all these other
0: of course names. it's always pandas. <laughs> like every every cybersecurity <laughs> company wants to brand themselves as hey we discovered this group but you know everybody else is looking at uh, all the major groups together and so every single major government hacker group from whatever country all has like 13 different names. It'll oh, be okay. a number or a panda or a like a coiled cobra or a,
2: you know, it's a mess. Like the logos on LSD tabs. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't you would know about that.
3: <laughs> as, as I mentioned about the background check.
1: <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, to, but to Kevin's point, that makes it difficult to do things like, strategically track the volume of chinese cyber operations because you have five names for the same group right and each vendor has their own um optic right on the world in which this is what our ev shows and this is what our software shows um and they're in different industries and around the world so it makes it incredibly difficult to track sort of the strategic big picture right as much as i want to dance away from the Snowden question uh, i think The the thing I'll say about that is it's likely that the Chinese government realized how much U.S. companies were forced to comply with U.S. law enforcement, right, and intelligence services.
2: Under PRISM, right.
1: Um, I mean, that was just kind of a small, you know, part of it. There's a larger legal regime, right, Right. that companies have to, are legally required to um, submit information primarily to the FBI, um, and the Department of Justice on, and they can't get around it. They can be challenged in court, and that seems like the rest of the world didn't have an understanding of how, of how that worked, right? And um, China has really taken that revelation, I think, and applied it to its own domestic information sphere, um, you know, if they've really learned anything.
2: Right. They don't have to feel guilty about doing it. But so it's a, it's now a second-tier issue now for the Trump administration. I thought he was supposed to be really good at the cyber. <laughs> he said he was so good at the cyber. He was good at and the then, cyber. Um, His son was good at the cyber. So Barron's good at the cyber. Huh? <laughs> yeah.
0: Barron is, yeah, uh Yeah, Barron. Barron has computers, right. and he's really good. Right. Uh, I don't know if you, if you guys caught this, but he—one of the most uh, highly regarded people in the Trump White House was a, a former NSA guy named Rob Joyce. Sure. Uh, who had—he— Apparently did not get along with John Bolton when John Bolton became Trump's national security advisor a few months ago If, if even that two months ago whenever that was uh, And so Joyce left to return to the, the NSA and now is a senior advisor back to the NSA's new director
2: John had all sorts of people Bolton Yeah,
0: <laughs> and there is no cyber coordinator anymore. Like it's not gonna be a job They There's have no anymore. There's no cyber coordinator. There's now. no cyber so coordinator. are just they're not reappo- Oh God. So He's not good at the cyber. I, <laughs> I think there's a fairly convincing case that, that NSA is bolstering up and DHS is doing a lot of cyber work and the White House itself is
2: uh, the opposite of that. And the intelligence community has just got to be really distracted, though, by you know, the attacks on it, right? I mean, it's, it I, can't be a good thing. Imagine. I mean, maybe yeah. you can speak to that a little, Priscilla? Oh, um,
1: I mean... For me, um, the insinuation that as like a civil servant and professional and patriotic American that I can't do my duty because I may or may not disagree with, with whatever administration is in power, um, I think people find insulting. Um, right. I worked for, I came in under George Bush. Maybe I worked under Obama. Um, there are many people whose careers span decades in many administrations, um, and there's not a deep state. I will tell you, having been there, there's no deep state working to kind of undermine the policy of choices of the administration. I, think the, I wish there was. <laughs> well, Come on, we're, we're it, it goes, on top of you guys. So.
3: <laughs> can you do something about that? But it, but it goes back to what Kevin was saying,
1: right? There's no cybersecurity coordinator. And like one of the main jobs of the National Security Council is to coordinate all of the agency's policies on things like cybersecurity. Right? So, like, um, it... it it may be a second-tier issue because it's not coordinated, right? Or um, there's no one at the White House who can get everyone together to agree on one plan, right? So it's it's a, uh, not a deep state.
3: <laughs> so um, we've sort of touched on this, and I, I assume from what you've said that Chinese hacking has got a lot better and more sophisticated uh, recently. But Priscilla, uh, could you give us, in layman's terms, a sense of, just how powerful China is uh, as an actor in cyberspace now. And perhaps, Kevin, you could follow up with any observations from DEFCON Beijing mm-hmm. on you know, the quality of Chinese hackers that you met there?
2: Or, or comments that the Western hackers had about their Chinese counterparts.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, So over the past few years, right, there's been sort of these two forces, right, the PLA reforms, and I think the anti-corruption and campaign in China has also been a big driver of change in the government and the intelligence services. Um, Also, to a certain extent, the cybersecurity agreement demonstrated that there can be sort of real world consequences to cyber operations, right? Um, Maybe they're not Serious consequences, right? Um, but there's the, that was an actual agreement, right? That was reached based off of cyber activity. So, um, over the past few years, there's been a, a marked change in the way that China and to be fair, a lot of nation states are conducting their operations. Mm. So, first is that we use what's called commodity malware. Right. So, this is a term that references. Everyone knows what malware is. It's, it's malicious software, right code um, that enables attackers to get access to people's computers or, or steal data, right. Um, for For many years, uh, nation states particularly developed highly specialized malware. Um, that was very unique to each threat group, right? And it became a calling card, right? It became, while it was successful, right? In many cases, um, it became a way to identify those groups and associate them with that specific compromise, right? So today, groups are using these sort of more generic pieces of malware that you can find in forums, or that are produced by a contractor somewhere and sold to many different units on the um, deep web, on the dark web, uh, or on the normal web. The dark uh, web—that's it. <laughs> deep state, dark web. Right. Um, that you know that they just tailor little parts, um, little pieces of code to the functions that they need, and it makes it much more difficult to track and identify who they are second is encryption encryption is 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 ubiquitous, widespread yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, is ubiquitous um, and then attackers are using it just like we are so now attackers are doing things like encrypting their communications with the malware and with target networks encrypting their mm. what we call exfiltration or the data streams right that they're stealing from networks another thing that uh, Chinese hackers are doing in the old days in cyber old days 2008 uh, the, the groups used to conduct these operations from what we called their source ranges in their at their physical locations. So if we take Unit 61398, for example, um, most of the attacks that were conducted by that group originated from a relatively small IP range in Shanghai that was registered to that building, right? That was part of what helped FireEye to identify the building in CNN to kind of camp out front. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, You don't see attacks coming from source rage in Beijing, right, that's associated with another military unit or uh, Shanghai MSS unit. Um, They've become much more aware of that and I would argue that's because they care about getting caught.
2: Hmm. Hmm. And what about the other question that Jeremy asked which is about uh, the capabilities as seen by uh, Western hackers you might have talked to at at, at DEF CON in Beijing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm talking, in, in this context, we're talking on the ground, not these sure, kind of elite sure, government yeah. hackers. But,
2: but it's a, sort of a reflection, right?
0: Y- yeah, the, a country's kind of you know, defensive hacking culture. So recently, as in the past few years most most hacking conferences will will have what's called capture the flag competition as sort of a like a scavenger hunt of hacking abilities. you'll you'll team up with a couple friends or a couple coworkers, and you'll make a go at it and see you know can you can you get the highest score basically And Chinese hackers have tend to do pretty darn well. They're kind of making a name for themselves at various conferences. I don't know if they've they've ever won def cons, but they've certainly won other conferences. Huh. Um, and yet at the same time, they have very recently as in this year, uh, been dissuaded from participating in in foreign foreign hacking competitions because they're
3: giving way too many of their secrets. That's implication. Yeah. yeah right. do, where Where did that news come from? Because uh, you know, h- how do we know they were dis- dissuaded? I'm trying to
0: remember. It's an
1: actually announcement from one of the big three. It was either I think it was either Baidu or Alibaba. Mm-hmm. Security chief said it's time to keep our vulnerability discovery in country.
3: Chinese. Uh, discover- it wasn't a government statement. It was, uh, it was uh, probably Alibaba.
1: <laughs> um, I think, too, government has the, There was a police that
3: statement well. that they
0: were going to better enforce. Uh, I forget exactly how it was worded.
2: It's, it's not these companies, though, these security companies, that are hoarding zero-day vulnerabilities or exploits, right? I mean, it, the, the it, idea this it, is being done presumably by state actors. The idea is that private researchers... I mean, what, in, should we explain what that yeah, what that means? Yeah, okay, yeah. What, what what is uh, What is a zero-day exploit?
1: Okay, so um, zero day um, refers to a time frame um, for the discovery of a vulnerability in a piece of software, right? So let's talk about Microsoft Word, right? Um, Say there's a flaw in Microsoft Word that nobody else knows about, but one day someone discovers it and creates an exploit or a way to exploit that vulnerability. Until anybody else knows about that vulnerability, right, it's called a zero day. It's a bit flexible because that term can kind of be used sometimes, to talk about vulnerabilities that haven't been fixed or patched yet as well. But in the large sense, zero days are extremely valuable because nobody knows about the vulnerability and somebody already has an exploit for it. So there's no way to defend against it.
0: And I don't know if you would bring this up naturally, but but I will, which is that the the NSA historically hoarded discover, you know, had some of the, the best researchers in the world, and and would <laughs> would hoard <laughs> a bunch. Of them with, right. they would call hoarding vulnerabilities. Like they they would discover vulnerabilities, and they wouldn't tell the manufacturer. They would just use them, and that could lead to you know you don't know if some criminal hackers or some other government hackers are going to uh, also discover this and say it's affecting Microsoft Windows, and then every Windows user in America and elsewhere could potentially be uh, a victim. The U.S. has very steadily decreased its exploit horde uh, over the, over recent years. Uh, I know one estimate recently, I think Jay Healy had an estimate of 10 or fewer. I don't know if you can confirm or deny that that sounds um, accurate.
1: I guess the only the reference I have is uh, former NSA Deputy Director Rick Leggett who made this statement uh, last year that um, NSA uh notifies 90 percent does notifies the public of 90 percent of the vulnerabilities that the agency discovers um so in terms of numbers i don't know what Even that how means how often
2: i have to update you know patches then that means it's a lot yeah. so
1: was we'll, it we'll play this too as as the standard government flag bearer here um the united states at least has a process right where the intelligence agencies discover vulnerability they discuss it right and whatever we might feel about the decision that's reached, right? This is a discussion that's overseen by the National Security Council at the White House, and arguably 90% of them are released to the public, right? No other country that we know of has even a process to talk about that. We're talking Russia, China, certainly not North Korea, Iran, so. Israel. Israel, I mean, there may be some type of process like this in other countries, but nobody else talks about it. Um, And maybe the U.S. didn't talk about it either, arguably before a few years ago.
2: See, Jeremy, it's good that we Americans overshare. (laughs) um, He's always criticizing me for (laughs) oversharing. So do we have any estimates at all about Chinese the Chinese horde, about how many zero-day exploits they may have, have managed to amass?
1: I It's not even, like, it's not right. a finite number. Right, right, I, I right? guess I'm, I'm getting um right. So, like, the numbers are, I think, in terms of zero-day exploits, it's more about the value, right? So some software is really widely used by everyone, and some software is not. Some software is used by really high-value um
3: Potential networks targets,
1: yeah. like uh, servers, right, and um, uh, backbone, right, Infra- internet infrastructure, and those, while there may be fewer, are more valuable than your standard uh, Adobe Flash, right? What
2: Which is like? the one that's always making Adobe What about something like Stuxnet? Uh, what would, was that? Did that originate as as a as an exploit of a known vulnerability or was that some sort of other purpose-built software?
1: Um, So what I know about Stuxnet um, uh, was that it was unique in the sense that it was very purpose-built, right, to go after uh, Iranian uh, centrifuge software, Um, and it contained a number of zero-day exploits, uh, which is quite unique. Um, and they were kind of patched together. So really complicated pieces of malware will have several stages, Mm. right? Where a first stage right, will be implanted on a computer. It will then give the computer instructions to call out to a website, an IP address or something to then install a different stage. That stage will give the actors different types of access. In the Iranian case, um, it had to be very specific to that industrial control software, right? Which takes a lot of knowledge as well.
3: I think we're just about ready to wrap up time-wise, but let me ask one last question. <clears throat> uh, does the fact that private Chinese companies like Baidu are now engaging with the hacker community in the United States bode well for future cooperation between China and the U.S. on cybersecurity, or are we just going to see maybe a little bit more interaction between black hat hackers from both countries? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you something that a uh,
0: former Obama-era white, uh, DHS uh, employee told me there who was who was there and he said you know it might be a little limited uh, the interactions we're having here but all these guys they're like late 20s early 30s most of the people who are going to run various government Chinese government agencies cyber divisions in 15-20 years are here are going to be here at the next one and so if they're here having genuinely good faith conversations and you know may, maybe a beer afterward with Westerners, that's got to be a good thing because later on, whenever you know the, they're going to be working as representatives of their government, speaking with American or whatever Western government equivalent, it's going to be way stodgier, You're going to have way less, you know, kind of a natural rapport. And so, to whatever degree that can that can help relations, that it, it probably will a little. Uh.
1: Warm and fuzzy. Can you bust his uh, bust his um,
3: idealistic dream, Priscilla?
1: Um, I'll try not to.
3: That's usually my job on the podcast, <laughs> by the way.
1: Is this. No one country owns the internet right so we're kind of all in this sort of security together right most of us across countries use similar software even if we don't know it right so at the very people the people level right certainly i agree with kevin that Hackers and information security professionals in China and the U.S. talking to each other is definitely a good thing. And that's never been the problem with the U.S. and China, right? It's always been a government problem, right? When either one government or the other has come down and tried to enforce regulations, and particularly with China, right, the restrictions that the Communist Party placed on people. So the more that our people can get to know each other now, right, to form those relationships, the better.
2: Priscilla Moriucci and Kevin Collier, thank you so much both for taking the time to chat with us and for joining us here at Dorsey & Whitney. Let me also thank our our gracious hosts here at Dorsey & Whitney. Uh, uh, It's just a terrific venue, and thanks for having us. Uh, Let's move on out of recommendations, but before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for SupChina's premium access service, and you can tap directly into our digital newsroom. Not hack directly, but tap directly into our digital newsroom. (laughs) Uh, is Slack Slack probably has lots of vulnerabilities. We should, really should be careful. Uh, and join. I mean, w- you know, we just got taken down in a three-day-long DDoS yeah, actually, attack. Yeah, we need to. Was, yeah, oh, well, no, have we we have also to make, you make your brain that. about that. Right. Yeah, well, we did. Uh, anyway, so so you know, join us for special chat sessions with our guests on, on our Slack channel. We hope to invite both of you to come. Talk to our, 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 our folks. Uh, you also get early commercials for release of the Seneca podcast. And if you like our podcasts, make sure to give us a positive rating and write a nice review at the iTunes store. And now on to recommendations. Jeremy, it is our habit for you to go first. And so why why, why not? Why okay. I,
3: I, I just thought of it actually before this, um, uh, uh, before we started. Uh, but And I've just started listening to it. It's a new podcast called The Arab Tyrant Manual. <laughs> um, and the, the, the hosts are, uh, I think they're both in Norway, uh, Iyad El-Baghdadi and Ahmed uh, Gatnash. And they discuss all kinds of things about authoritarianism and freedom in oh, wow. the Middle East, and it's just—it's uh, uh, a nice. They—they uh, they both have quite strong opinions, and it's a—it's a really fun and informative podcast. I thought you were going podcast. for an
2: Arab tyrant look right now there. That's, yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> right. it's a thing. <laughs> you look like a mullah without the cap. Right, right. its pretty amazing. Uh, you guys yes. got to see what he looks like right now. That's, that's <laughs> That's great. So the Arab Tyrant Manual. The Arab Tyrant Manual. Okay. I'll check that one out. I'm looking for something to listen to in the shower in the morning. All right. (laughs) Priscilla, why don't you go next? What do you have for us?
1: Uh, I'll stay on the podcast theme. Oh, good. Um, I'm listening to one right now called Crime Town. Uh, It's about organized crime and political corruption in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, it's a great one, yeah. In the 80s and 90s, Buddy Cianci. I think it's really well done. I actually tried to like... um, Stream, you know, kind of listen to it all at once. Uh,
2: it's really oh, that's, it's excellent. It's it's some um, it's if you like those sorts of serial ones, uh, yeah. like serial or, or like uh, S Town, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, these are the beep that now. Uh, really great, yeah, really great one. Uh, excellent recommendation, Kevin. What do you have for us? We weren't allowed to swear. I definitely we're, do. no no we're, we're not allowed to swear no, we're okay. not allowed to swear <laughs> no, my boss doesn't let us we swear. used
3: to be allowed to we bit. used to swear but yeah. we, mm-hmm.
0: uh, I'm going to recommend a a country singer I really like uh, who's uh, kind of the, his name's Tyler Childers and he kind of cut his teeth in my hometown of West Virginia and I, he's really good uh, I catch him every time he comes to New York which which he does it's not like pop country it's it's I want to say like authentic country but it's it's the good
3: stuff. Good country.
2: Yeah. Oh, and it exists. Um, we're just, uh, Kevin and I were just chatting before about about the guitar stylings of one of my favorite country musicians, Brad Paisley. Who's genuinely one of my favorites, too. But he's very pop. Yeah, he's very pop. But his guitar playing is wicked. I mean, wicked. he's just insanely good. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to make a musical recommendation, too. Uh, I, on this show before, I've recommended a band... Uh, and a lot of people have written to me to tell me how how grateful they were for that recommendation. Uh, it was called Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. They disbanded oh, okay. a few years ago. Actually, Faye knows them very well. Yeah, she's played with them. Yeah, so have t- uh, Jeremy's wife, of course. Uh, they have reformed in a sort of a different uh, a different inhar- incarnation with an equally silly name called Free Salamander Exhibit. They're sort of a. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, the Free Salamander exhibit, they're amazing. So check out their, their live shows on YouTube. I are, 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 do not miss them if they come through your town. Uh, they are mind-bogglingly great. Uh, the, the, the level of musicianship is just off the charts. Uh, they're sort of an experimental metal band uh, with just crazy chops. Think of sort of King Crimson, Mr. Bungle, and Slayer all in one. Uh, it's, it's, it's just killer music. Free Salamander exhibit. Make sure to check that out. And with that, I want to thank you guys for, for, uh, for, for joining us. Let's give it up for Priscilla Moriucci and for Ken Kotlin. And thanks again to Dorsey and Whitney for having us. And thanks to all of you for coming. Give yourselves a round. Thank you. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, that's me, and Jeremy Goldcorn. that's him. And it is edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And do check out the other shows in our growing stable of podcasts. Check it out. This summer we're going to add a lot of really cool new podcasts, so stay tuned. Uh, and we will see you next week. Take care. South that good, <laughs>